like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to Philippians chapter 4. We've had just a wonderful journey for a little over a year now through uh, the book of Philippians. It's really not hard to see why there are so many people that consider Philippians to be their favorite book in the Bible. Now, I keep telling you as we get closer to the end of our study that I have very much difficulty ending this. It seems like when I come down to the end, uh, there's almost, or there's just one more sermon left in me, and the last sermons keep expanding, expanding, and and, uh, there's always that one more left as we get down to the uh, close of chapter 4. And this is really somewhat of a problem with these closing verses because there are many people who think that the meat of the letter is over when you get to, uh, before you get to verse number 20. And there's really not much that you can, that you can draw out of these uh, final verses. But I find that as you go through the Bible, everything that's written has great significance to it. You just need to take a little bit of time to dig it out and find out what the Lord wants you to know. Now, admittedly, I'm having some trouble uh, trying to figure out how to make sermons out of genealogies, like in the book of Numbers and the book of Chronicles. That's a little bit more difficult. But if you spent some time with that, I'm sure you'd find something there the Lord wants you to know. But we're here towards the end of the letter now, and Paul does something that is customary for him. Uh, He usually, at the end of a letter, sends along a little personal greeting. Now, he starts out the letters that way, and he also ends it the same way. And as he does, he has this favorite little designation that he uses for God's people. Now, if you look at verses 21 and 22, we find the word. Uh, Paul says, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. And the word there, of course, is the word saint. Uh, That's a word that he uses to designate God's holy people. Saint actually comes from a word that means holy. And so I think it's good for us to look at this word and and why that there's uh, such a description of God's people. And in this word, there is uh, expectation. If you're going to be called a saint, then there are certain expectations that you must meet. And this evening, I want to review... Uh, the first part of the message, it's been a couple of weeks. I was ill last week and not able to be here. So it's been a couple of weeks since we had part one. So we'll talk just a little bit about that. And then we'll introduce a little bit more material for your consideration in part number two of the message. So we began in that first part talking about the designation as saints. And this is one of Paul's favorite terms. He, he's always speaking of saints And what he called a saint is very much different from the way that people use the term today. Now, over uh, many years of erroneous teaching, this term saint has become very confused. And to most people, uh, a saint refers to a dead Christian and then only to certain dead Christians. The Roman Catholic Church has ingrained it into people's minds that a saint is someone who has demonstrated some extraordinary characteristics during their life. And uh, even going so far as to say that uh, before a person can become a saint, that they have to perform at least two bona fide miracles, and then they can be promoted to sainthood. And, of course, the church is the one who decides, and they have a council and so forth, who decides who is going to become a saint. Um, Over this past week, I guess it was last Wednesday, as I said, I couldn't be here last Wednesday night, but there was a... Uh, an article in the paper, and I'm not going to preach for the paper tonight because you know I don't do that, but I thought that was very pertinent to the discussion we had a couple of weeks ago uh, concerning Pope Paul II 
And just let me read a few, a little, a little bit of the excerpt of this article. It says, Pope John Paul II whipped himself with a belt, even on vacation, and slept on the floor as acts of penitence and to bring him closer to Christian perfection, according to a new book by his Polish prelate spearheading his sainthood case. The book was written by Monsignor uh, Swalomir Oder, the, the postulator or main promoter for John Paul's canonization and cause, and was released Tuesday. It was based on the testimony of the 114 witnesses and boxes of documentation Oder gathered on John Paul's life to support the case. At a news conference Tuesday, Oder defended John Paul's practice of self-mortification, which some faithful used to remind them of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It's, I'm quoting here, it's an instrument of Christian perfection, Oder said. Now, um, that, of course, is so wrong on so many levels to think that a person could beat themselves with a whip or with a belt in this case, and that is an instrument of of Christian perfection. That that certainly is not in the Word of God. And it says that, such a pra- that people wondered how such a practice could be condoned considering Catholic teaching holds that the human body is a gift from God. In the book, Oda wrote that John Paul frequently denied himself food, especially during the holy season of Lent, and frequently spent the night on the bare floor, messing up his bed in the morning so he wouldn't draw attention to his acts of penitence. But it wasn't limited to this, as some members of his close entourage in Poland and in the Vatican were able to hear with their own ears, John Paul flagellated himself. In his arm wire, amid all of his vestments and hanging on a hanger, was a belt which he used as a whip and which he always brought to Castel Gandolfo, the papal retreat where John Paul vacationed each summer. While there, uh, excuse me, while there had been Uh, rumors that John Paul practiced self-mortification, the book provides the first confirmation and concludes John Paul did so as an example of his faith. Pope Benedict XVI, now this is the part really I was trying to get to though, Pope Benedict XVI put John Paul on the fast track for possible sainthood weeks after his April 2, 2005 death by waiving the customary five-year waiting period before the process can begin. I've looked for that everywhere here, and I I can't find the customary five-year process for sainthood. It just doesn't seem to be anywhere that I can find that. Uh, Last month, Benedict moved John Paul a step closer to to possible beatification, the first major milestone in the process, by approving a decree of his heroic virtues. The Vatican must now confirm that a miracle attributed to John Paul's intercession occurred in order for him to be beatified, a step which many Vatican watchers have suggested may come as early as October. Oder declined to speculate on any possible date, saying the miracle must still be confirmed. Now, those are the kinds of things that lead people so far astray on the idea of what the Bible idea is of a saint. And when Paul wrote... Uh, this letter, he certainly did not have such things in his mind. Uh, To think that um, there is some group of men that could bequeath some special status upon a dead Christian and think that that's what's going to make them a saint, and then to say that these saints are people that you should pray to, that you should ask blessings of, that you should ask God or ask them to make intercession to you for God is simply 
so far outside of the Bible, it, it, it's almost ludicrous to think that anybody could possibly believe those type of things. Now, that is not in the Word of God. Paul did not mean this when he talked about the saints. Saints are not on the statue level, and that's one of the things they do as saints as well. As soon as they uh, promote that person to sainthood, they go out there and carve out the statue for them, and people go out there and, and they bow down to these statues and pray and ask for intercession. Saints are not on the statue level. And a saint does not have to perform a miracle to be called a saint. You don't have to be dead to be a saint. A saint is anyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Anybody who has Christ as their personal Savior, a born-again Christian, that is what a saint is, and that's what Paul speaks of, and that's why he uses the term so frequently throughout his writings, and he's always referring to people who are saints. So that's his designation. That's what saint means. It's a term for any born-again believer in Christ. Then we also discuss the design for saints. As I said, saint does come from a word from which we get holy, and so to be a saint means to be holy. And positionally, all of the people of God are holy. They've been set apart for God's service. One of the meanings of being sanctified, being set apart, being holy, is is that we are set apart for God's service. And God has designed us that we do good works. And every good work that we're able to do, uh, those automatically become works of the holy God because the only works that we can really do are works of righteousness that God uh, has given us to do. So God's chief attribute is his holiness, and it's his intention that he would stamp every born-again believer with that likeness. And that is what uh, Charles Wesley actually wrote in, in his Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He wrote, Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. And what that means is, God, would you please obliterate everything that looks like sinful man, and would you put your image in that place? And that's what God has done for his people. God has set us apart for service, like gold and silver vessels are are to be used in a king's house and used only by the king. That's what God does for his people. And so we're set apart from our sins. We are sanctified for God's purposes. And really, we don't have any right to use anything that we have ourselves, what we are, for any other purpose than God's purpose, because now we belong to him. So positionally... All believers are saints. We're justified from our sins, and that's what gives us the right to be called saints. Well, I'm going to move on a little bit now to some new material tonight and a couple of other areas concerning saints. Number three is the difference in saints. Now, the world has certain expectations concerning saints. Uh, They may call a person who lives a really good life and does good deeds. They may say, well, that person's a saint even though they really don't understand what the Bible means by uh, the term when it uses it. Now, when they say a saint, they're, they're making a comparison. Uh, they have this fantasy ideal of what they think that a saint is. And so if somebody approaches uh, that idea that they have, then they call them a saint, but they only do it by comparison. Now, we talk about people being uh, justified by God, and positionally, a saint always meets that idea. I mean, because you're a saved, because you've been justified from sin, you're always a saint. You're not going to lose the designation from a saint, whether anyone else recognizes that or not. A saint is someone who's been freed from sin, and that's because we have been given Christ's righteousness. Now, we have that inwardly. Uh, When we're saved, we're, we're justified from all of our sins, and inwardly, positionally, we're holy before God. But unfortunately, we don't always outwardly meet that expectation. 
Now, in the last message, I told you that it's possible that you can actually lower the expectations of sainthood and still maintain that designation. A few weeks ago, I received a letter uh, from someone who thought that they had done me an injustice. And this person wrote me a letter, and in the end of the letter, it said, I'm not even going to ask for your forgiveness. I don't even feel that I deserve it. Now, as far as I know, this person is not a Christian. I had talked to her some time before, and rather than claiming that she was a Christian, all that she would say is, well, I'm just a very spiritual person. That's always a dead giveaway. That means, no, I'm not a Christian. Uh, but so I wrote back to her, and I said, well, you, you really don't have to ask me for forgiveness. And then I quoted uh, Ephesians 4.32, which says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I told her, I said, I live. We try to live by that statement. So you don't have to ask me for forgiveness because I've already forgiven you. And she wrote me back, and she said, You are such a saint. And so what she'd done, she had judged me by this expectation that she had. She didn't really understand what the Bible had to say about being a saint, but, but I met that preconceived notion that she had in that particular instance. And so she says, you are such a saint. Now, if she'd seen me in some of my uh, weaker moments, she probably wouldn't have said that at all. She wouldn't have judged me to be a saint. But the point that I'm trying to make here is there can be a lowered expectation, biblically speaking, and the person still maintains that designation. Now, yeah, that's true because of the position that we have in Christ. We're justified from sin, and we're always justified, and we're not, we're not going to lose that designation. But there definitely is, though, a difference in saints. Saints are identified, I think, in two ways. Uh, the first one is perhaps a little bit more obvious to us because it refers to our social designations. Saints are called from all classes. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians, if you would, for just a minute. Uh, we're going to read a couple of scriptures here and, and for both points that I want to make about this. So keep your Bible open there, if you would. The first chapter of 1 Corinthians in verse number 26 is where I want to read from. And here Paul writes in that 26th verse, chapter 1, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now we notice there first that the majority of Christians do not come from the intelligentsia of society. There are also not very many famous people that are called. There are not many rich people called, not many from the, from the upper crust. Sometimes I wish that it was otherwise, because then if we had some uh, good, faithful, rich people in the church, maybe we wouldn't so, uh, worry so much and be concerned about our church budget. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? But we trust the Lord for all of that, because God doesn't really need a whole lot of rich people to run his program. And he doesn't call those, uh, many of those types because they have a tendency to try to steal away some of the glory of God. So Jesus said, uh, if you remember, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And he said that because God doesn't want anyone to think that he's dependent upon those types of people. God's work is done by working through us, not us doing God's work. 
And so what God does, he turns our thinking upside down on these kinds of issues, and he uses what the world would consider to be the throwaway people. Not many rich, not many from the upper crust, not many famous people. That's who God calls. And so God uses base things, and usually it's the ones that uh, society really doesn't want to have too much to do with, and those turn out to be many times the people who do God's greatest work. And this couldn't have been more evident than when Jesus chose the 12 apostles. Not one of them would have made it into high society. In fact, the closest one to it may have been the apostle John, and that's because he was a friend of a friend who had friends in high places. And that's about as close as he got. All of them were basically ignorant and unlearned men. They were just nobodies as far as the Jews were concerned. Matthew, remember, I mean, he was worse than a nobody because he was a hated tax collector. And so it goes to show you here that God, that God uses just so many different types of people. He's not interested in what you are in yourself. He doesn't need that. And that's why that uh, if you see somebody who has doctor in front of their name or have post-hole digger behind their name, and that doesn't necessarily automatically make them knowledgeable uh, of the Word of God. So what God does, he just takes and he turns religious thinking upside down on this. And God doesn't need all accommodations to do his work. He doesn't need those types. And that's probably why Luke, who was a physician, was not actually in the group of the apostles. Now, maybe Luke would have been one who could have raised the credibility somewhat of that group if, if that's what Jesus had wanted. But really, the only credibility that the apostles needed was that they had been with Jesus. Uh, Acts chapter 4 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And so we see then that most people don't come from the upper echelons of society, but there are some who do. And Luke, or some who do come from there. Luke would be one because uh, he's an example, I think, of that. Uh, some from a, a little bit upper levels of society. Joseph of Arimathea was one. Nicodemus was also one. And Corinth, Crispus, who was the chief leader of the synagogue, was saved. And uh, he became a Christian. And so that takes us back then to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. He says, not many of these are called. But we notice that the scriptures do not say, not any of these are called. It says not many. And so God chooses people from all walks of life because there is no person who's excluded from salvation. We don't ignore the rich and we don't ignore the upper crust because God can save them too. And so we take the gospel to them as well. And so there are then different classes of believers. In Paul's day, many of the believers were slaves. And and when he speaks of Caesar's household here in verse number 22, he may have had the slaves in mind. And some people think he also probably had in mind the Praetorian Guard of Caesar, that many of those soldiers had become Christians. So the idea here of who can be called a saint may be somewhat downgraded by the types of people that God chooses. They come from every class. But principally, they actually come from the lower classes. But then also I think that we could downgrade the expectations somewhat because saints have diversity of development. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again and look at the opening two verses of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, 
unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now there, the recipients of the letter are are designated as those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now that's the positional sainthood that I was talking about a moment ago. A moment ago, they're sanctified. They've been set apart to God, justified from their sins. And then he reiterates by saying, called to be saints. Now we would call that somewhat of redundancy because... He, but he gives because he gives this designation to the sanctified ones as being sanctified ones. That's what saints is. Saints are. Now keep in mind. Then we read those first two verses. Now we know to whom this letter is addressed. They're saints. There's no doubt about that. That's who Paul's writing to. Now go down to verse number eleven, chapter one. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, there we have the same people. These are saints. Now, go over to chapter 3, verse number 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now, there we have the very same people, and Paul says you act carnally. You're acting according to the old flesh. There's envy among you, there's strife among you, there's division among you. And so not one of these, would we say, meets that designation that the world has in their mind that we would call them saints. They don't act like saints, or what generally is thought to be a saint. But it gets even worse than that, because you go over to chapter 5 and verse number 1. And it says there, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. They're still saints. And now we see here they are involved in fornication. It's a sin so bad that Paul says those wicked Gentiles who live in the city of Corinth, those idol worshipers, those very wicked people, they wouldn't even do the sin that you're committing. And yet, they're still saints. Not one time does Paul say, well, this person is not a saint. There's even an indication when you go to the second letter that this person that Paul is talking about actually got things right with God and he came back and he was restored. And then we go over to chapter 6, and we find the very same Corinthians. And these saints are taking other saints to court. They're suing one another. In chapter 7, they have to be straightened out on the issues of marriage. In chapter 10, he goes after them by taking, uh, uh, saying, you're taking part in all these heathen feasts. In chapter 11, and I know you're familiar with this one, he rebukes them for the mockery that they've made of the Lord's Supper. And he even went so far as to say that God has taken some of your lives because of the way that you have acted. Chapter 14 is about their abuse of spiritual gifts. And people are still mixed up about that today and still trying to sort it all out. Paul went through all of that, and then he gets down to the end in chapter 16, and he calls them brethren. They're all still saints, but they just don't look very much like it. Now, here is the problem with the Corinthian church, they were in a state of arrested development. You see, they were in the baby stage as Christians, and they just stayed there. 
At least at this time, they're still acting like babies. They're still saints, but here they are in a very low stage of development. Now, there's an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians that, that shows us a demonstration of the diversity among saints. Now, if you'll go over there, if you would, please, to the 8th chapter. Uh, here Paul uses in 2 Corinthians, he uses the Philippian church as a model to show these Corinthians how that they should act. Now, if you'll look in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, verse number 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they are willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. Now, who's Paul speaking of here? Who's the example? Well, it's the Philippian church that we've been studying the letter, uh, letter of Philippians. It's those people. It's the very same ones that we saw in chapter 4 that were so forward with their giving to Paul. They looked him up, and they wanted to help him in his ministry. And so, these saints at Philippi are those who had moved on to a higher level in their Christianity than those that were at Corinth. But the Corinthians, they're still saints. Paul called them that. They're just on a different level. They're down on a lower level than those that are in Philippi. Now, the same thing is true today. It's true right here in Berean Baptist Church. We have a group of saints that are in different stages of development. Now, some have been Christians for a very short time, and some have been Christians a long time. Some are growing very well, and some are growing up. But some of you are still knuckleheads, and it's like trying to bounce a ball off a brick wall a lot of the time. So, it, you know, it's really sad to say that when you're, when, when, when you're dealing with Christians, that, that some are still struggling with Corinthian issues. I mean, these are people that are babes in Christ. They're snooty. They, they get their dander up and they get upset over the most innocuous, trivial things. They're saints, or at least they claim to be. You know, some of them, I think we might have to wait until Jesus comes back and separates the tares from the wheats to be sure about it. But they claim to be saints at least, and we have people in different stages of development. So there is a difference in the saints. They're saints even though they don't meet the world's definition. And that's what I mean when I say that you can lower the expectations just a bit and you can still call them saints. Now, now definitely, none of them are miracle workers. I'm not a miracle worker, so if you're going to wait till I perform a miracle to call me a saint, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now, let's go on. I have one more area I want to cover tonight. And fourthly is the danger for saints. And I suppose that a great danger for saints would be that we would stay in a Corinthian mode of development. I mean, that's not desirable. But I want to hone this in just a little bit and, and think about a little more of the world's expectations of saints. It's not good that anybody should be able to look at a Christian and say, that person could not possibly be a saint. Now, what's dangerous for saints? Well, first, I think discredit and disgrace. You know, I think about this great difficulty that Paul had when uh, he went to 
Corinth and really the great difficulty they had in keeping all the churches that he ministered to straight. Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. And can you imagine how difficult that it must have been for him to win people in that place? I mean, Corinth was one of the most, if not the most wicked city in all of the Roman Empire. Now, it was really probably as bad as Crete. You know, we still use that designation today about Crete. When we have a really boorish person, we say, oh, that person is a Cretan. You've heard that expression? Well, Corinth was probably as much or just as bad as, as, as Crete was. So Paul went there and he preached, and, and uh, it was great difficulty getting a church established there. So he does get the church established, but he leaves there, and then he begins to hear all of this information coming back that, that the people in Corinth are, have strife, there's problems that are going on in the church, all, all kinds of things that are happening. So what happens when a saint begins to degrade his testimony? Now, initially for Paul, it was very difficult for him to deal with those people. But what happens when the converts, I mean, the ones that have claimed Christ, you've won them to the Lord, and they further poison the well? What do you do then? Well, the Word of God is discredited. The Savior is discredited. Other Christians are discredited. And so the next time that Paul goes back to do work there, his work is triply as hard because the saints just aren't acting like saints. And when that happens, it's very, very difficult to restore the confidence that people have. And don't we notice that today, that legitimate ministries have a problem with those that aren't legitimate? I mean, there's a great deal of problem because of all the shenanigans that goes on uh, in Christian circles today, all the things that are happening. And it doesn't matter if the perpetrators of those things are really Christians or not because the world considers that those are the people that stand for Christianity. And it really hurts all of us. You see, when you have this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel out there where the preachers are lining their pockets, who does that hurt? When you have Baker and Swaggart that have their sexual tryst, who does that hurt? And when you have Oral Roberts raising money by claiming to have seen a 900-foot Jesus who was going to kill him if he didn't raise millions of dollars, who does it hurt? Well, it hurts all of the legitimate ministries. I mean, it hurts this church. It hurts us because people don't have confidence in Christians any longer. You know, when I was working on this sermon, I was, I, I, at the very same time, I just read in the paper that morning that there was a priest who won $10,000 in a poker tournament for his church. How difficult is it for us to preach against a casino here and gambling and all of that when you have that kind of thing going on? In the, very, in, in the same paper, there was also an article about a youth minister in Lake County who sexually assaulted a 14-year-old girl in his youth department. How difficult does that make it for us? I mean, when we're talking here about the abuses that are in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and they're not the only ones, folks. I mean, it's all over the place. It's in Christian circles everywhere. How difficult does that make it for real Christianity? Now, it shows us one thing for sure. It is utterly foolish to us to believe that by the powers of persuasion that we could ever make a person a Christian. I mean, if choice, if that's all it was, if it wasn't the Holy Spirit working in a person's heart to change his heart, just trying to persuade people to become Christians, we couldn't do it. And that's because there's this the scandalous nature of those who say that they're Christians. Who wants Christianity? That's why it takes the Holy Spirit to change a person's heart. So there's real danger here for Christians, and there's danger for those who are real Christians. You see, whenever your life discredits 
and disgraces the cause of Christ, it causes a problem for us. Your language can do that. Your attitude can do it. Your personal habits can do it. Now, the expectations for saints, whether it's right or wrong, as far as the world sees it, affects the ability of all of us to be able to win people to Christ. Now, one thing that I've, as you know, I've advocated for Brian Baptist Church is that we use the relationships that we have at work and the relationships that we have with family in order to bring people to Christ. But I wonder how many people have actually burned their testimony already at work and they burned it with their family so that whenever you speak the things of God, they just laugh you off. They, they, don't, they, they don't believe it at all. That affects the ability and it, of the church. It's critical to the church to be able to reach those kinds of people. You see, the world has expectations of Christians, and they may judge wrongly, and surely they do. But friends, don't think for a moment that anything that I've said tonight lessens the expectation that God has of every one of us. God also has expectations, and he expects every saint to be exactly what he's called them to be. And so he doesn't pass this off, and he doesn't grant us excuses and say, well, the world's being too hard on you. No, a mature Christian or a baby Christian both have a responsibility to separate from sin. And it is possible to do that. And it's possible because the Scriptures teach, and don't we know, that there is an indwelling Holy Spirit in those who have received Christ. So the power to resist sin is always there. So we need saints everywhere. I mean, we need saints not just within the the four walls of this building. You need to be a saint at work. You need to be a saint where there are people who couldn't be reached by anybody but you. You might be the only Christian that's at work, and God may have put you in that very place so that, so that you would win somebody in your workplace. You know, I often think about that. What would it be like if a Christian, when he's looking for a job, the thing that he has on his mind as he fills out the application is, Lord, put me in a place, give me a job where I can reach somebody. I mean, this is what I want. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to reach people for Christ, so give me the job where I can reach lost people. And so what we need is we need Christians in checkout lines at markets. We need saints in hospitals. We need saints in factories. We need saints in communications. We need saints in every type of legitimate work because there are people that can be reached only by Christians that are in that environment. Now, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, those of Caesar's household salute you. Now, who, who, could, who could win the people that are in Caesar's household? Who's going to be able to witness to them? Do you think that Caesar was going to set up a pulpit there in the palace and let Paul come and preach to everybody? You know, that would be just as likely as that your employer would say, you know, we're going to get everybody together. We're going to get them in the lunchroom today or the cafeteria. Everybody gather in here, and we're having the pastor of Brian Baptist Church, and he's going to come over and preach to you the gospel of Christ. That's not happening. And it's no more likely for Paul. So who's going to win those people in Caesar's household? Let me tell you who. People that Paul witnessed to, and they went back to work. And there they began to speak the gospel of Christ to those that were around them. See, they they were secret plants in Caesar's household, only they didn't stay that way. You know, that's the way we are. We're stealth Christians a lot of times, and, you know, we're we're secret agent Christians. Uh, These people didn't stay that way. I mean, they they began to, to speak the things of Christ, and so people in Caesar's household got saved. So it was possible for them to win other people, but only so long as they were different from what they were before They were different from the people that were around them, and 
They used the opportunity that God gave them to speak. See, they couldn't be guilty of discrediting and disgracing the cause of Christ because they could never reach people that way. Now, don't think that this thing doesn't matter because, you know, you have some people say, oh, well, here at Berean Baptist Church, you know, we believe in election and predestination. I mean, they're going to get saved anyway, so why do I have to worry about it? If that's what you think, the whole doctrine's been lost on you. Because God has his means, and the means is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's not one person who's ever going to get saved unless they believe the gospel of Christ. And somebody has to be a witness, a credible witness, to take that gospel to them. It does matter. And then there's also a danger of compromise and concord. Now, what I'm speaking here is about is compromising the truth. And I mean agreeing to the lie for the purpose of getting more people in. The compromise and the concord uh, usually leads to discredit and disgrace because what happens is you can't abandon the truth and expect that you're going to maintain the holiness of a spiritual life. So doctrinally, we can't compromise. Now, if you've been to Berean Baptist Church very long, you know that uh, you know if we hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. We're, we're not going to change the Bible for anybody. We're not going to pass over certain parts of the Bible. That's why we study it verse by verse. I mean, three times a week, verse by verse. We're going right down the pages of the Bible. We take it all as it, all as it comes. We don't, we don't leave any of it go. What good would it do for us to compromise and fill the church up with unregenerate people? I mean, if truth is not our priority, then neither is salvation and neither is the glory of God because God is never glorified where there is no truth. So what we have then is the New Testament to go by. We have the examples of the apostles. We have the church that's been built upon the foundation of the apostles and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And we notice how uh, Jesus and the apostles acted as they taught the word, and that is they never compromised with anyone. You never find them agreeing with anyone short of the truth. If you look at Jesus' ministry and see how he started out, he started out with at times, more than 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children, who were there to listen to him preach. But when Jesus finished, how many were left? There were 11 that were left, and before it was all through, they had fled also. Now, how could Jesus have kept all those people? Water down the message. Make, make it a little bit easier for everybody. Don't make such high demands on people's sin. That's okay. You're welcome here. There's no problem with that. Jesus would never do that. And because he didn't, because he had a standard of righteousness that he upheld, and he said, this is what you have to be to follow me, they stopped following. So we can't ever, we can't ever come short of the truth of the word of God because when we do, we fail in the purpose, the plan that God has given us here to, to win people to Christ. So you look at the apostles and, and also... Uh, as they preached, I mean, they, they, they never compromised anything, and their, their no compromise led them to a martyr's death. Uh, Jesus' no compromise led him to the cross. Uh, the apostles, uh, all of them were killed as martyrs except the apostle John. If you remember, I've told you this, that, you know, the apostle John most likely had been boiled in oil. And failing to kill him, they just exiled him to a barren island in the Mediterranean Sea. So that's really God's expectation for saints and it's an expectation for every one of us it's not just apostles and it's not just people we read about in the New Testament it's his expectation for every one of us here 
And I'm going to tell you, folks, it's not easy being a saint. That is, if you're going to be one like God wants you to be. Now, do you have to do miracles to be a saint? No. Let God do the miracles. Let him do that. He uses the gospel to perform a miracle in every person to get saved. Let God do the miracles, and that'll be good enough. God's miracle is in you that you have been called to be saints, and that is you're set apart, you are holy. And as the Word of God says, you are fit for the Master's use. So that's what we need to be. We need to be saints that live up to the expectation that God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that we're able to look into your Word. And Lord, I pray that every person here, every Christian here, would very clearly understand that you have expectations of us. Now, the world has their expectations, and they're not going to call us saints if they, we don't meet those expectations. And we're not going to be able to win them if we call ourselves saints and do something completely different from what saints are supposed to do. So I ask you, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, you would draw us closer to you and help us to realize there is a testimony to be lived every day. One slip can ruin the opportunity that we have to win someone to Christ. Help us to realize that. Lord, thank you again for the time together tonight. Bless as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.